Amen. Well, I think you need a little more tension in your life. <laughs> you say, you've got to be crazy. That's the very thing I'm trying to get rid of. I've got plenty of it, prefer to have much less. I don't want any more tension. But it's important for us to recognize that there is terrible tension and there is good tension, right? So the terrible stuff is destructive. It's the constant stress. Feels like that internally there is a tug of war and we are outnumbered by the, the other team and they're much stronger than we are and there's no way we're going to win. It's a type of stress that creates heart disease and destroys relationships and ruins our walk with God because we are so distracted. That's the terrible tension and you don't need more of that. You do need less of it. But there's good tension as well. We need to realize that there is something positive and constructive about this thing called tension. Bob Hoskins tells us tension is everywhere. It keeps the roof over our head, the bridge under our car, our guitars and pianos playing on key, our ecosystems balanced, and our bodies healthy. We literally cannot live without tension. The good kind. And there is such a thing as tension in the Bible. This is the good kind. Those people who want to eliminate tension will sometimes take that attitude in the scripture and find themselves very confused and frustrated because they don't realize that biblically you have to live with tension. One of my favorite quotes comes from Professor John Murray who was so many years at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He said, in every Bible doctrine, there is some degree of non-closure. I love John Murray because after I read him, it takes me 10 minutes to understand what he said. But basically, to explain it, here's a, another slide. Every area of biblical theology involves this idea of unresolved tension. And it's because the finite can never fully understand the infinite. Does that make sense? I mean, God condescends to our level in the word, putting the word into our language. He condescends to our level by becoming a man. He is the word of God. And yet because he is infinite and we are finite, we can't take it all in. If I'm listening to a PhD in mathematics explain some type of theory, there's a good chance that I will be lost after the introduction. And there is a slight chance I might be able to work on it for hours and get a glimpse of what he's going at, but I'm convinced I'll never truly understand mathematics like he does. And that's human to human. Imagine human to God. So the example that I always use that you're very uh, familiar with is the Trinity. You cannot resolve the tension in one being three and three being one. Different persons and yet the same <laughs> in essence. 
And Jesus himself, we saw this from the very beginning. We're going to see this throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus himself is God, yet man. And so we say, okay, I get it. He's 50% God and 50% man. No, he's 100% God and 100% man. You say, that can't be. And if you're unwilling to live with that tension, you're going to mess up the Bible all the time. You've got to surrender to that which is above you. And I like the statement that the Bible is not against reason, but it is above our reason, our ability to reason. And that's what we're seeing as we open up the wonderful book of Hebrews. Bob Hoskins also suggests to us, this is how you need to handle biblical tension. Embrace your smallness, that you don't know everything. Number two, trust totally in Jesus and the word of God that explains him. And number three, and we'll get to this, enjoy the Sabbath rest of the gospel. The Sabbath rest of the gospel. Do you know what that means? Keep coming back and we'll get to chapter four eventually. But it simply means resting in the finished work of Jesus. It means believing what we just did and resting in what he has accomplished. So, our last time together took us to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. The last part of verse 8 says, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to Jesus. Not everything is under his authority. It's been placed there. He's at the right hand of the Father. And yet there is not this acquiescence among human beings. There is not this willing uh, surrender by planet Earth and its inhabitants to the Lord. He is sovereign, but not yet ruling everywhere. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on Earth as it is in heaven. That's a point of tension. So we don't see everything subject to him. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Another point of tension. Chapter 1 said he's above them. And now chapter 2 says he's below them. But it's only for a short time. He was made a little lower than the angels for a while, or made lower for a little while, and now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he could taste death. For everyone. And that's what we just celebrated. On the cross, Jesus tasted death. He died your death so that you would not have to die. And he is crowned with glory and honor. The first thing I want to emphasize from the section of Scripture that we're looking at today in Hebrews chapter 2 is the fact that he suffers for us. He does not suffer because of his own sin. He suffers for us. He was made lower than the angels, and he suffered death. When you come to chapter 2, verse 10, it says, In bringing many sons, and parentheses, and daughters, uh, the Bible uses the male inclusive term, 
And some newer translations are trying to emphasize that it includes everyone. That's okay, because it is sons and daughters. But sometimes the word son is an elevated position in the family in that day, like the one who gets the inheritance. So we need to remember that. But in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, let's stop right there. I leaned over to Pastor Doug and I said, I believe every verse deserves a sermon in this portion of Scripture. But with, what, 330 verses? It would be a long time before we would finish Hebrews. So we've, we're, we're going to unpack some things, but we won't be able to go as deep as we'd like to. But I want, what I want you to see is this. This is God's glow, goal. He was crowned with glory and honor, and now he wanna, brings many people with him. He wants to bring them to this place of glory, and he will. He wants them to experience the glory. He's crowned with it, and he wants to take us with him. Glory and salvation, by the way, are synonymous terms. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that we are obtaining a salvation in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Glory is ours. We're not yet there. Not yet there, but we do have it by the grace of God. And notice that this was God's plan to have Jesus suffer. It was fitting, fully appropriate. It's exactly what God wanted to see happen. The logic behind it is amazing. God ordained the incarnation and death of Jesus. Read in Acts chapter 2 that Christ died by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. And Jesus willingly gave himself to it. But it is the plan of the God for whom and through whom everything exists. We probably should sing the doxology right now. The amazing thing is this is referring to God the Father who made his son suffer. But in other portions of Scripture, like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it's applied to Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Or listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now, you cannot apply that to Jesus without either committing blasphemy or else. The truth of the matter is recognizing that Jesus is God, right? And the scripture does this so often. We take it for granted. So it is fitting that this God, for whom and through him, through whom all things exist, that he should make the author of our salvation, of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Jesus is called the author of our salvation. Some of your Bibles might have the word pioneer. This word is used four times in the New Testament. 
twice in the book of Acts, and it's translated prince. And twice in the book of Hebrews, and it is translated in many uh, translations, author or pioneer. It means the head of the clan, the hero, the founder of a group of thought. It's used again in Hebrews in chapter 12, where it says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter or the pioneer and the completer of our faith. What a great text that is. But here he's mentioned as the author. And yet Jesus, in some way, had to be made perfect. Now, we're not talking about in the moral sense, the ethical sense, because in that sense, he's always been perfect. But this word means completeness, bringing something to completion. And you'll find it about 10 different times in the book of Hebrews. We're just getting started. First time it's used. (laughs) But what the Old Testament couldn't complete, Jesus does with his death on the cross. The Old Testament sacrifices were good for that time, but they were pointing to the better and the completer. And we're going to find out that Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith, and he doesn't let anything in between slip away. So he is the one who suffers for us, and he completes the plan of the Father. But secondly, he had to become like us to accomplish this. So he suffers for us, But he has to become like us. And this is one of those, as we've already stated, tension points in biblical theology. If you believe that a person, that Jesus could not be God and man, that he is clearly man and he cannot be God, you'd be a Jehovah Witness. It's all based on human rationale. They don't submit themselves to the authority of the text. The first two chapters of Hebrews really are hard for them. In fact, years ago, I don't know if it's still true, still true, but they actually changed their Greek Testament to coincide with their theology. Jesus is both God and man. He became fully human. I, I, I can't quite explain it. And I don't think we do enough justice to the humanity of Jesus. We believe he's God, and well we should, but we don't take in all the implications of his fully human state on this earth. Verse 11 says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Literally, all are from one. We're of the same family. He becomes human. You'll notice in verse 10, it talks about sons. In other portions, it talks about brethren, like verse 11 and 12. Again, inclusive terms, men and women. He talks about children in verse 13 and 14. We are of the same family. Not before the incarnation, but after the incarnation. As Pastor Doug read from Philippians chapter 2, he was already God. 
He's always been God. And he did not think it robbery to call himself equal with God. But he took the form of a man. Mankind became a human. Not just that, a servant. Not just that, he died. Not just that, he died the terrible death on the cross. Talk about humility every step down for us. He became like us. Chapter 10, verse 10 in Hebrews, it says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. No more repetition in the sacrifices. What he did was perfect and completed the plan of God, and he paid the debt, and now the one who is holy wants to make other people holy. There's positional holiness, our status before God, justification, and practical holiness, our growth in grace, sanctification. But God's intent is to make us holy. He becomes like us so we can become like him. I don't know who said that, but I think that's one of the greatest statements around. Jesus became like us so we could become like him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So, the latter part of verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. <laughs> Frankly, I'm sometimes ashamed to be called a member of the human race. And I don't do the race proud at times either. We're rebels against the holy God. And yet Jesus came to be one of us. And he's not ashamed. I remember, I'm reminded of that verse in Romans chapter 1. You probably know it well. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed. And every time I read that, I ask myself, Am I ashamed, embarrassed, backward when it comes to telling other people about Christ? I should not be ashamed. And then what really gets me is this. Jesus is not ashamed of me. He's calling me his brother. Now, he uses three Old Testament quotations to prove that statement, that we are one family, that he is one with us. And the first one comes from Psalm 22. This is in verse 12. I will declare your name to my brothers. Jesus is speaking here, according to the author of Hebrews. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters, to the brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Now, Psalm 22 is recognized clearly as a messianic psalm. The early church obviously understood that this whole psalm was speaking about Christ. So the writer of Hebrews has no problem putting these words into the mouth of Jesus. It's very messianic. Uh, you read in verse 1 of Psalm 22. Have you ever heard this before? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, attribute that to Jesus. Or how about this? 
The mocking in verse 6, all, see, all who see me mock at me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. That's what happened at the crucifixion of Christ. There was physical agony. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are broken. I am pierced. My hands and feet are pierced. And then the gambling for his garments. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. They cast lots for my clothes. So when you get to verse 22, the author of Hebrews has no problem saying, this is Jesus speaking, and what he's saying is, I, Jesus, declare your name, Father, to my brothers and my sisters. I'm in the congregation. I'm a human speaking to God, but speaking with other humans. Your praises. And then he takes up something from Isaiah chapter 8. It might be a little more challenging, but if you, and I, you and I were to read it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and remember, every chapter of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, and it's always from the Greek translation, which supports the idea that these were Greek-speaking Jews, most likely from Rome, talks about the Italian connection there, and the fact that he's using this translation because they were very familiar with it. And verse 13 of Hebrews quotes Isaiah 8. And again, I, Jesus, will put my trust in him, God. And again he says, here am I and the children God has given me. So he uses these three verses to show that he's one of us, the same family. And he's not ashamed of us because he has become like us. Like us in every single possible way except for one what is that he never sinned we we think that jesus probably went around earth just knowing everything that was going to happen but when he says he doesn't even know the time of the second coming that shows part of his humanity he put aside some of, of his, not his deity in essence, but his privileges and became fully human so that he got tired when he walked and hungry several times a day and totally worn out. Verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that, this takes us back to the fact that it was fitting for God to allow Jesus to die. So that by his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You've got the word children in verse 14, obviously taken from the reference in verse 13. Another name for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. They have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human just as they are human so that he could die in their place. Oh, what grace. What mercy. So by the grace of God, he could taste death for every person. This pre-existent individual, God, 
before time became man in time that he might save all who put their faith and trust in him. Now, salvation is described in verse 14 from a negative perspective. Positively, he purifies our sins and redeems us. But from a negative perspective, he came to destroy. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And who is the devil? According to the author of Hebrews, he's the one who has the power of death. Why? Because he introduced sin into the human race and the wages of sin is death. There's a triple enemy here. Our sin and the devil and the result of death when the devil introduces sin into the world. Now some modern scholars really hate the idea of a devil. (laughs) And they're embarrassed by how many times the scripture talks about the devil, like he's a real person or an individual. Like he has identity and will or that he even exists. And so it's popular now among some scholars to say, well, this was just an idea that came from Persian religion and it was introduced late in the game in the Old Testament and the New Testament writers just accepted it. (laughs) Except that's not what the word says. And Jesus never minimized this personality, the devil. In fact, he clearly identifies him as a murderer and a liar and a thief. He's always been this. And he exists. Now, don't be so proud as to think the devil is the one who's attacking you. I suppose generically you can say that, but there's only one devil. And yet he's got a lot of minions helping him. And I don't mean the little yellow ones. He's got a lot of demons helping him. And they're strategically placed throughout the world. And maybe they, like angels, have territories and dominions and hold power and sway. He's called the prince of the world in John chapter 12. So there's some influence and there's some power here. But Jesus came to destroy him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. You say, but yeah, the devil is still active. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Read 1 Corinthians 15. And it says that Jesus destroyed death. He put death to death, and yet we still die. You know what that is? Tension. Theological tension. It's the already and the not yet. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus came, now is a time for judgment, speaking about the cross. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and the devil was dealt a fatal blow at the cross, predicted from Genesis chapter 3. And yet he's still alive. He's still very active, but with limited power. I know he's active because James chapter 4 says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, we need to be on our guard. We need to be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to maul and destroy. 
And he wants to do everything he can to destroy you. He's active. I heard this story about a postman that I think is really good. True story about a man who in his early 20s, actually later became quite a biblical scholar, but in his early 20s he was a postman, had to deliver a letter to a house he'd never visited before. And so he's in England, he opens the gate to the garden and begins to walk toward the house. And immediately confronted by the most vicious dog, the largest dog he's ever seen. This dog comes at him, teeth exposed, ready to maul him, and then suddenly in midair is jerked back because he's chained. To my immense relief, this massive angry dog was chained to a huge stake in concrete. So what did you do, Mr. Postman? I delivered the letter. And came back to that house several other times without the same fear. But I didn't look at the dog, he said. I looked at the stake (laughs) that was holding the chain in the concrete. And the application is this, that the devil is limited in power. The chain seems to be very long, but he's limited Maybe he's a roaring lion because he's already been wounded. But your only hope is staying away from him. And the reason we get bitten by that dog is that we get too close to him instead of too close to our Savior. So it says that he is going to deliver us from the power of the devil destroy his power. Secondly, he's going to free, this is verse 15, he's going to free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I was doing a little bit of research on the greatest fears in America, and one of the top ten fears is losing your freedom. And I want to cry out, you already have. You are a captive to your own sinful nature. And it's the devil who introduced the sin. And the result of sin is death. And we are held captive. We're slaves to the fear of death. And from the latest statistics that I was able to find in in 2019... 41% of the people are afraid or very afraid of death. But it's not in one of the top ten. It's interesting to me that this phobia about death causes people to do some strange things. They want to do everything they can medically to make themselves young. (laughs) They want to go in a pack with a company to freeze their body so that whenever science figures out how to bring people back from the dead, they'll be ready. They avoid death and the subject. We're very uneasy about death because it's a fear that holds us. 
And I know that there are many issues that cause someone to be tentative and fearful. And even the godliest of people when facing death can have some type of fear. But I want you to know this, that in the gospel, Jesus breaks the chains of the fear of death. Because he died in our place. The son died so that he could bring other sons and daughters to glory. And the fear of death is forever gone when our faith and trust is in him. Jesus said, I'm the living one. Book of the Revelation. I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Who's in charge? Not the devil anymore. Someone else. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he helps us, the scripture says, by redeeming us. Verse 16, for it is not the angels he helps. He didn't become an angel. He became a human being. It's Abraham's descendants. You say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that because I'm not Jewish. Well, understand this, that he is saying that specifically because he has a Jewish audience. But if you read Romans 14, it says that we are Abraham's offspring to all who have faith, like Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are his offspring. Galatians chapter 3, understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. He's referring to the full community of faith here. Not just Jews, but it's all those who believe. And he helps us. He helps us by removing the fear of death. And he helps us by being our high priest. That's amazing. Verse 17, for this very reason, it's almost like a conclusion, he became fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He conquers the devil, he conquers death, and he atones for our sin the three great enemies of our soul are gone. By the way, this is the first occurrence applied to Jesus, that title, the high priest. It's going to be used over and over again in the book of Hebrews, only used in the book of Hebrews to refer to Jesus, but he is our high priest. And he's not just a high priest. This is unusual, but there are some modifiers here. He is our merciful and faithful high priest and because of that that brings us to our third point he's now able to help us he became like us he suffered for us he became like us and now he is able to help us he helps us eternally as mentioned in verse 16 and now he helps us temporally Verse 18, last verse of the chapter. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
because he became a human and suffered, he's able to help humans who suffer. And the word temptation here in verse 18 can also be tempted or or tested. He's able to help us. How does he do it? He removes our fear, as we mentioned already. How does he help us? He conveys his mercy. If Jesus were just a faithful high priest but was a bit of a curmudgeon, if Jesus was a faithful high priest but not generous and In forgiveness, we'd be in trouble. But he's merciful. Isn't it great to have someone with the gift of mercy around you when you're suffering? If I'm in the hospital, and there are different gifts, if you read in Romans chapter 12, if I'm in the hospital, I don't want someone with the gift of prophecy to come and visit me. What happened? I took a fall and broke my ankle. Shouldn't have done that. This is what you need to do next time. Here are five steps to prevent you from falling. Don't be so foolish. This is going to happen again if you don't change. (laughs) Okay, thank you for your visit. Go next door. But I want someone with the gift of mercy. Hey, I've been there, done that. Happened to me. Happens to all of us. That's what Jesus does. We have a great program in our church called Grief Sharing. It's human beings who've gone through some of the same circumstances, especially the loss of a a loved one, who are going to cry, weep with those who weep, and be there to help you through that difficult time. It's great to have merciful people around you, but it's even greater to have the merciful high priest, the savior of your soul, right with you. Isn't it? So he conveys his mercy, and remember this, he's faithful in all ways will remain faithful. Chapter 4, verse 15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he was human. He knows what they are. But we have one who was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet he never sinned. When I first memorize this verse I memorized it from the old King James maybe some of you did and it says for in that he suffered he when he was tempted he is able to succor those that are tempted and I remember it took me a long time to grab hold of that word we don't use that word succor anymore Uh, This is actually from the Geneva Bible of 1599, but the old King James 1611 says the very same thing. To succor is to give aid or help or support. By the way, I think this is a great argument for translations to be updated. Um, It was a great word back then, and it's fallen out of use now. But Jesus wants to come alongside to help you, like a shepherd. He comes alongside you as a savior. He is there next to you as a merciful and faithful high priest that we can be delivered from the power of the devil, that we can be delivered from the consequences of death, and that we might enjoy glory 
as a child of God. Oh my. It doesn't get any better than this. I apologize for not making it more powerful and clearer than I should. But go back and read it and think about it. And see Jesus high and lifted up as your Savior, Redeemer, and High Priest. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the victory that we read about in this wonderful chapter. How could anyone consider going back to religion? The most cruel thing in this world is religion without Christ. It's all about doing and never doing enough. It's all about shame and guilt. It's all about punishment, penitence. And it never brings freedom to the soul. But the death of the Savior on the cross for us wins our liberty. And Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. He is the liberator of our soul. And he is our high priest forevermore. I pray, Lord, we might see him as such. In this moment of prayer, let me encourage you as you bow your head, close your eyes to spend a few moments with the Savior. If you don't know him, now's a great time to trust him. And if you do, tell someone who knows Jesus that you've trusted him as well. Let's pray for a moment, just quietly.